Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. Good morning. As already has been said, happy Father's Day. Um, today I have a message for fathers, and the title of my message is, Who's Your Daddy? Who's your daddy. And, you know, it's, for me, it's encouraging that in a culture where a lot of things are crumbling, we still have some days that we do some things that are honorable. We honored our mothers a few weeks ago, and we still have a day that's called Father's Day where we honor fathers. Um, that is a very biblical principle that children should honor their fathers and mothers. And it's encouraging to see if you're on social media, this is one day that my feed can get blown up with uh, messages about, Dad, you were there, Dad, you're awesome, and that sort of thing. So social media has its weaknesses, but it can also be used for good. And speaking of social media and posts, I have this relative that likes to post memes. Uh, they're, they're always coming through my feed, and there's, there are numerous uh, posts that have a, a title or a caption that reads something like this. Press like and share if you remember this. She's older than me, so she has these things that I don't remember, and I'm like, I, don't, I, can't, I can't relate to that. Um, but you know what? This morning I thought, you know, I've lived long enough to where I'm going to have my top 10 things, press, share, and like, if you remember, okay? So I've got a list here, and you just, where you're sitting as you see these things, see if you can remember this. Number one, it is the shoulder-held video camera. Man, I remember back when, I, when that came out, uh, that's actually a smaller version of what first came out. My dad bought this thing with battery packs. You looked like Rambo. And, and like you carried that thing, I mean, you look like a full broadcast network, but now we can just put it on these little phones. These things give us better pictures than the shoulder-held video camera. Second was dial-up internet service. Remember that? <laughs> Listen, I found out that that still exists. I, now, if you, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but there are people that still use that. Remember when that AOL was like one of the only ones? You've got mail. Remember that? Okay, so number two, number three, road atlases. Listen, young people, there was a time when you had to know how to read a map. I actually used something like that on my adventure when I was younger uh, out west. So uh, number four, camera, cameras that needed film. Listen, these things had, I think, what, 12 and 24? Were there 36s? Okay, well, if if you really wanted to go big, you got 36, you know. I have seen people do uh, selfies of 36 of themselves in one shot, right, on Facebook. But, But back then, you had to sparingly take pictures and just hope that they came out. All right, number five, who knows what this is? Credit card and printer. Listen, young people, we used to have to pay uh, with money. These, were, these were, were used where you put your credit card on it, and you go, 
And we, you didn't see this used much. It was very inconvenient back in the day. Uh, there was a time that we paid for things that we had money for instead of credit. We're going to have a, a teaching series in a few weeks called Why I'm Always So Broke uh, that I want to talk about this subject. But anyway, that's not for today. Number six, floppy disks. All right. Yes, freshness. Now, m- most of us probably remember that blue one, but the black one. TRS-80s, right? You stuck that thing. It were, that's why they were called floppy, because they really were. You could bend those things in half, and they would not break. Number seven. Yeah, the boom box. Yes, that was the iPod of the 80s. LL Cool J going on right there. If you talk to me, it's best if you talk to my left ear, because this is how I held mine right here. Number eight. The encyclopedia, yes, we didn't have Google back in the day, so you had to look it up. And it's amazing that most topics that were important to us were in there, you know. It, um, and also another thing, we didn't have spell check. We had to know how to spell back in the day. <laughs> Number nine is the phone pager. Remember that, where it's like you get this phone, uh, this 911 or whatever it was? Yes. Number 10 when you got that page, a phone booth. Do these, has, do these things even exist now? They do? Okay, because I was wondering, I was wondering if Superman was mad, you know, because like, where does he change now? Because this is where he would go to change. And also, you would, you would put a dime in there. You had to pay for to, to use the phone back in the day. So, all right, so that's my top ten. But I've got one more. And it's this, press like and share if you remember your father. If you remember your father. Who's your daddy? And you know, if there was some way that I could hook up our hearts, our spiritual hearts to an EKG monitor, how would your heart be responding right now to that, to that stimulus? Who is your daddy? Who is your earthly Father, I believe that there would be three basic readings that we would have. Number one, there would be a reading that is flatlined. In other words, there would be no pulse, there would be no response, because some of us grew up in homes where dad was not present ever. He was never there. We have no experiential context for the word father. We have no face, we have no voice to connect us with the title father, and it produces nothing in us because we literally never had a father. Then there's a second response of others of us whose EKGs would show an, an unhealthy erratic pa- pattern that reveals pain and hurt and anger because unlike the first group, we did have fathers in the homes, but sadly, we wish that we hadn't. Because when he was there, he actually did more harm and brought more anxiety upon us than good. And so when we think of the title Father, we associate it with hurt and sorrow and pain. And then there are those few whose spiritual EKGs would show a steady, relatively healthy heart rhythm. And there would be a few minor, you know, glitches here and there. But overall, those of us who had this kind of father, we have good memories. Um, and we would be seen as the minority group, though, 
And that's sad that that group would be considered to be an abnormal group in today's society because a good father in this day and age is a rarity. And as I've preached before, the title of father is a borrowed title. It's actually a title that is meant for God the Father. And he has given dads, dads, if you are a father, he has given us the high honor to be an earthly representative of him to our children. In other words, this is how it should work. When your, when your child hears the word father, the way that we lived our lives should help them to have a picture of who their heavenly father is. For example, in Psalm 103, verse 13, the psalmist says, As a father shows compassion to his children, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In other words, when, you're, when you're, uh, your children, fathers, we're supposed to show compassion to our children, and when they receive compassion, they can go, oh, that's what my heavenly father is like. But here's the question. What happens when dad was never present? Or what happens when he was present, but he was either passive or he was dominating and abusive? This kind of father can cloud our understanding of who God is. Who the God is that we are told to address as our father who art in heaven. And I don't think I have to convince anyone in this room that there is a great disconnect that has happened between fathers and their children and how this has affected our view of who God is. And you know, there's this longing that's in all of us for our fathers. Now, it may not be there now because of your circumstances with your father, but at some point in your life, there was a longing for you to have a meaningful relationship with your earthly father. We are innately desire, we have an innate desire to know our fathers. And you know, Disney captured, in my opinion, this yearning back in 1994 when they released the animated feature film, The Lion King, King, right? Okay, I see you. Um, This movie is so successful, 25 years later, this summer, they are are re-releasing a CGI re-imaging of The Lion King because Hollywood understands this longing in our hearts. And you know the story, most of us. The story begins between a wise and seasoned lion father, King Mufasa, and his young cub son. What's his name? Simba. Simba. Okay, I'm preaching to the choir right now. But there's this famous scene in the movie where Mufasa is giving his son firm, loving, and life-giving correction because Simba deliberately disobeyed me. (laughs) And, you know, this life-giving correction is something that has been stolen from our culture because parents, as a whole, don't have the understanding of how to say no 
to their children and also how to discipline their children in a way that leads them to life. Because there is a way of discipline that leads to life. But as Simba is following behind his dad, his small cub paw is swallowed by the massive masculine footprint of his father in the dirt. Remember that scene? This, this scene communicates clearly how children view their fathers. And Simba uh, idolizes his father, and he wants to be with him, and he wants to be like him. He wants to follow his bravery. He wants to learn from him. And ultimately, he wants to make his father proud of him. That's inside of every child when they're first born. We all desire this. And as most of us know in the story, Mufasa later is murdered by his brother, Scar, who is jealous of him. And Simba flees the Pride Lands, believing the lie that Scar tells him, that he plants into his mind, that Simba was responsible for his father's death. And like many of us today, Simba grows up without a father to guide him and train him and remind him of who he really is, the child of the king. And at one point in the movie, after reaching adulthood, Simba is filled with guilt and frustration and shame. And he comes to the end of himself, if you remember, and he cries up into the heavens, yelling out to his father. He says, you said you'd always be there for me, but you're not. It's not, uh, it's because of me. It's, it's, it's my fault. Can you relate to this? Why is this narrative so familiar? Why is it not foreign to us? You guys know what I'm, I'm talking about here. I don't know how many um, adult men and women who are in their 20s, 30s, late 40s, they're still longing for that earthly father that they never had. Why is godly fatherhood such a foreign concept in our culture? Better yet, why is a godly father such a foreign concept in the church of Jesus Christ? It's not by accident. It's not by accident. And if you remember last week, we were in 1 John chapter 2, and John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. In other words, do not love that system that is opposed to God, that is led by the evil one, Satan. Satan rules the mind of this world and the thinking of this world. And he has set up this world and rules it with the power of lies. Not truth, but lies. Half-truths that are lies. Lies about God, lies about who you are, lies about, lies about what the meaning of life is, lies about what true love is. And gentlemen, listen, we as men have been lied to. And we need to understand that we've been sold a bill of goods. We've been lied to all our lives about in this world, in this culture, about what it means to be a man. And this has directly affected 
fathers and fatherhood. And there are three fundamental lies that we have been fed by this world all our lives in this culture, in the American culture. And, and Joe Ehrman identifies them as the three B's of false masculinity. The three B's of false masculinity. Number one, he says that masculinity in this culture is proven on the ball field. That's the first B. <clears throat> At an early age, during our elementary years, gentlemen, uh, we learn that our value is found in being able to compete, conquer, and win on the ball field. It's, it starts early back in the days of recess. My favorite subject, recess, right? Remember standing around in a circle waiting to be picked to, to play the game? Who got picked first? The one that could conquer, the one that could win. And you learn that, hey, this is what being a man is out on the ball field. We are, we are graded upon our ability to produce. Winners advance and losers fall through the cracks. And so we, we've been taught to find our identity in our accomplishments athletically or it's not just athletically, it's being more skillful at something than everybody else is. That makes you stand out. So, the ball field is the first place. Secondly, we are told that if we're going to prove our masculinity, we need to do it in the bedroom. Number two is the bedroom. What does it look like to be a man? It means that you can get the girl. Not so that you can look out for her welfare, but so that you can use her for your own selfish interest. And listen, gentlemen, that is not being a man. That is being someone who uses other human beings who were created in the image of God for selfish gain. That is not being a man. Thirdly, Ehrman argues that false masculinity is proven by the billfold, economic success. How much money do you make? What do you do for a living. Isn't that one of the first questions that we ask ourselves? What do we do for a living, gentlemen? And oftentimes we've chosen jobs that will give us that masculine status. How much do you make? How many possessions can you accumulate? Three things, the ball field, the bedroom, and the billfold. Men, we have been taught to associate our self-worth with our net Worth. It's all me-centered, me-focused, and me-oriented. And it is ungodly thinking where we are driven to always produce. And if you, listen, if you are not able to help me in this world thinking to produce a masculine image, then I will not need you and I will discard you. As a man, that's what we are, that's what happens. And listen, that's what happens to the family. Because in this culture, being a family man sounds good, but in the end, it does not give a man in this culture that masculine image that we so desire. And so oftentimes, the family is set to the side. So the question I want to ask is this. What should a godly father look like? What should a godly father resemble according to God? 
according to his word. Well, in his book, What He Must Be If He Wants to Marry My Daughter, Bodie Bauckham provides helpful insight into the biblical roles of fathers in the Old Testament. There's a study that's been done of the Old Testament to see how did the Jewish men function. What, what did a godly man look like in the Old Testament? Which There's a lot of things in the Old Testament that we cannot uh, do anymore, but there are principles within that that we can apply to, to our culture today. And here are 10 of the roles of a patriarch in the Old Testament. Now, a patriarch is the male head of a family. Number one, he is to instruct the family in the scriptures. He is to instruct the family in the scriptures. In other words, he's to be a man of the word. He should make sure that the word of God is being taught in his family. It does not mean that he has to be the only one teaching it. If there's a mother in the family, she has a great role in this also. But it is the man's duty to make sure this is happening, that he knows the word and he's able to teach it. Number two, he personally models before his family what it looks like to faithfully love and follow God. He models it. He teaches it with his mouth, but he also teaches it with the way that he lives. He, can, he doesn't only just teach it with his mouth, but he, knows, he shows his children how to do the very things that he has been teaching. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He is a man of God. Number three, he manages, this one, this one surprised me, uh, and this one actually convicts me. He said he manages the land in accordance with the law. In other words, he's a man of the environment. He cares about uh, the environment. So that, that, that's one that really uh, has convicted me, that I need to really look at how we take care of the earth. Number four, he provides for the family's basic needs. Food, shelter, clothing, and get this one, rest. He makes sure that his family is getting rest and not running around all over America. He knows how to to find rest in his home. He's a man of provision. Number five, he defends the household against outside threats. He protects his home. He's a man of protection. Number six, serves as elder and representing the household in the official assembly of citizens. Um, Back in the Jewish culture, there would be a council of men, and and the, the patriarch would go there and represent his family. He is a man of headship. Number seven, he maintains family members' well-being and the harmonious operation of the family unit. He's a man of peace and order. Number eight, he implements decisions made at the clan or tribal level. So when the the men would gather, these decisions would be made that would be best for the Israelite community, and he would go home and make sure that they were implemented in his family. He is a man that is a man of covering. I'm sorry, as a man of the community. Number nine, he protects his daughter. I love this one. He protects his daughter from male predators. Arranging for his daughter's marriage by finding a suitable husband and making proper arrangements. Um, I hope to do a, a later on in a... In a probably July, do a, a sermon on, is dating, is American dating biblical? Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But 
I love how a father is called to protect his daughter from male predators. Uh, he is a man of covering. Number 10, he provides security for his daughter in case once she gets married, the marriage fails. In other words, if the marriage fails, he'll take her back and, and care for her. He's a man of refuge. Gentlemen, how do we line up with this list? Very convicting list based upon the Old Testament. And men, we've been called to so much more than to sports, womanizing, and making money. And I've thought about, I've lived long enough to where I've seen um, some of my children go into the adulthood life and have their own kids. And I, but I've still got some, uh, some young, handsome son and daughters. Uh, I'm still parenting, so I'm not done yet. But I've thought to myself, you know, if I could dial back the clock, and I, and I was sitting where you guys are sitting this morning, and I could preach to myself this morning, what would I, knowing what I know now, knowing the mistakes I've made, the failures I've made, and some of the good decisions I've made, what would I preach to myself? And I came up with three B's. Three B's of true masculinity. These are things that before I got married, before I had any kids, this is what I wished I had heard. And here's the first one. Number one is to believe. Believe, not in yourself. I would say, James, believe, not in yourself. Do not believe in yourself. That is not biblical. I would say believe in God. Believe that God the Father loves you. Believe that, believe that he loves you deeply and that he longs for you. Now, I don't want to move on from this one too quickly. This is actually the number one point that I needed to hear as a young man, that my Father in heaven loves me. Now, I had a good father. He loved me. He, he took care of me. He, he's the reason, one of the reasons God used him to preach the gospel to me as a, as a young man. But my father was not meant to satisfy this deep, deep longing that's in my heart. He was there. He was meant to be a picture, like a shadow. Not, not God the Father, but a picture that would make me want to go to the true essence, the Father in heaven. And I needed to hear, and I needed to hear it now because I still wrestle with this, that God the Father loves me. Not because of my performance on the ball field or in the bedroom or because of my billfold. God does not need my money. He doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need any of my accomplishments. Titus 3.5 says that he saved me or that he loves us, not because of works done by us. You, you see that? Not because of works. That's not why he loves us. But according to his own mercy. And Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners. That word sinners means rebels. While we were doing nothing productive in the kingdom of heaven, he loved us by sending his son Christ 
to die for us. More than anything, listen to me, gentlemen, more than anything in life that we need to hear is that God loves you. The Father loves you. He proved it by sending his son to die for us on the cross. And, the, and we need to understand this because the love of the Father will transform the heart of a boy into a man. That's what transforms the heart of a boy into a man is the love of the Father. It keeps us from using people and makes us into servants to serve as we were created to. And man, so man, this is the first truth that you and I must grasp if we are to become godly men, husbands and fathers. Number one, that is to believe the Father loves you and that he longs for you to know him. Secondly, if I could talk to myself, myself, I would say after you have marinated in that and are growing in this, number two, be there. Number two, be there. In Luke 12, 15, Jesus tells us that our life, life is not made up of possessions. Life is not made up, made up of our accomplishments our accomplishments, or our possessions. Life is about relationships. Life, listen, life is about relationships. Our, our relationship with the Father and then our relationship with one another. And once our relationship with our Father is secure in heaven, then we can have secure relationships with our wives and children. But in order to do that, you've got to be there. Um, I've told you this before, and I'm going to say it again. I, over the years, I've interviewed parents don't have their, who are empty nesters. And I've said, what would you do over if you could do it over? And I, I encourage you to do that. If you're a, a young uh, parent or if you're a, some of these young guys right here, it's not too early to be thinking about this. Interview parents. What would you do differently? Number one, I wish I had been there more. That, that is always what they tell me. I wish, or I wish I had prayed for my children more. But number one, I wish I had been there more. And fathers with children at home, I want to plead with you, listen, you really need to understand the season that you're in. It's a season. It's not always going to be, I'm learning this, it's not always going to be there. I was at a wedding last night uh, with some, they were uh, with some uh, guy that got married, but he was this big. But now he's married, and there was this like, you got to be kidding me. It's like you turn around and it's over. I've, I'd heard that, but now I'm, I've lived it. I'm talking to you young people, young fathers. Understand the season you're in. That means that it, it, it should affect what kind of job you take. Is the job, your career path you're going on, is it going to allow you to be there? That is so important. Your presence there mentally, physically, and spiritually cannot be replaced with FaceTime on a, 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 a device. Now, I'm, you, know, you may be in a situation where that's your, your situation now, okay? And I'm not, trying to make anyone feel, I'm not trying to make anyone feel guilty. God can work in those situations. But who I'm talking to right now is those, who, those of us, I'm talking to my 20-year-old James, Okay, that's who I'm talking to right now, who have not made these uh, decisions yet, these, these um, mistakes. The, the, the thing I want you to see is you need to be there. And you're always, there's always going to be something in your life that competes for that. 
There's always going to be like your work or, or, or a hobby or the fellas. But I want to encourage you, choose what is best. Jesus teaches us that if we're going to give life to others, we've got to lay down our lives. It will cost you your life. And as a church, we want to help uh, you parents and fathers. We want to partner with you as you raise your children, but we have no intentions of trying to replace you. We can't replace you. God has put you in your children's life to do things that we as a church are just not equipped to do. And you may, fathers, you may be saying to me, well, I don't know what to do. I can just hear it. And I want to just tell you, welcome to the club. (laughs) None of us do. We really don't. Um, But let let me just say this. I'm not without hope, though, because I know God. Look what he says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. This is a very familiar verse to some of us. He says, Come to me, all who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And here, look at this. Here it is. This is what I want you to see. And learn from me. You say, I don't know how to be a godly man or a godly father. I didn't have a father in my life. and Maybe that set you back. I'm not, I'm not going to minimize that. But he is saying here, if you will come to me, Jesus is saying, if you will come to me, I will teach you. I will give you what your, your earthly father did not give. And I don't care how good an earthly father you are or that you had, he still failed. He still lacked in teaching you. He, his job is to point you to the Father. Jesus wants to personally teach us how to be godly husbands and fathers. And lastly, if I could preach to myself, not only would I say believe and be there, number three, I would say be perfect. Amen, Steve? Be perfect. Now, uh, you might be saying, what are you talking about? Well, in Matthew 5, 48, Jesus says that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. But hopefully, gentlemen, I hope you're saying, there is no way I can be perfect. Because you know that being perfect is not just difficult, it is impossible. And if I could talk to myself when I was young, what I would say is, is James, I know you want to be a perfect father, and I believe that every father wishes they could be perfect. But you're not going to be. You're going to fail a lot. You are going to fail a lot. And when confronted with your failure, you can respond in three ways. Number one, you can harden your heart and deny it. You can deny that's No, that's not. It, it's actually what you're doing that's the problem. It's not me. Number two, you can, in pride, wallow in it. Oh, uh, yeah, I'm just a horrible dad. I just can never blah, blah, blah. Or number three, you can be a man and own up to it. Being perfect 
begins by confessing that you're not. I mean, truly owning it. Stop trusting in your ability to perform and own up to your sin and failure, and then trust in the perfect work of Jesus on the cross. You want to be perfect? Trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross. He lived perfectly. In other words, you've got to take off your self-righteousness in order to put on his perfect righteousness. The blood of Jesus is able to truly heal and cleanse you of your shortcomings. And that may, may mean that you need to confess your failures. No, it, it doesn't. It's not might. We need to confess our failures to our children. Um, that One of the greatest problems that we have um, as parents is that for some reason we think that we're supposed to, to know everything. Now, we know we don't, but, but it's, it's hard. It's, it, it, it hurts our pride when we confess our sin, doesn't it? Uh, but there is freedom in that. Listen to what David says in Psalm 32, verses 1 through 5. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, or when I, I wouldn't confess I had sinned. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. The conviction of, of God was upon him. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That is good news, isn't it? Because one of the things that, if I didn't have the gospel, um, as a father, I would be so beat down because of, of who I am as a broken man and, and how I see that I fail in a lot of ways, as, a, as what we were called to be as fathers. But, you know, I'm able to, when, I'm, when I confess my sin to my children and when I confess my sin to the Father, it brings life to me and it brings life to my family. Just recently, I, I stayed up till, uh, I guess it was one, one in the morning, talking to, to my older children, and they were saying, Dad, this and this, and... I'm sitting there going, this does not feel good. But I let it sit there, and I thought about it. And I said, you know what? You're right. I admit it. I confess I have sinned in this, these areas. And it brought this, like, healing into our home. So, fathers, what I'm saying here is this. And if I could talk to myself when I was 20, I would say, do this sooner. Have these kind of conversations with your, with your children. And maybe you're a father who's, you know, your kids are already gone, and, and right now you're feeling this guilt. Let me encourage you today. Get right with God in this. 
Confess it, let it out, and then call that child. Confess it to your children. And maybe you're a child here that your father sinned against you. I know that's, I know that's happened. There's people in here who, who are, have been wounded deeply by the one who should have been protecting you. You might need to pour that out to the father and then call your dad and say, look, I forgive you. What do you think the Holy Spirit will do with that? I've heard stories even in this room of people who have confessed their sin to family members, and God does this great work of bringing reconciliation. Because confessing our sins to the Father allows him to pour out his love upon us through the forgiveness found in Jesus. And the love of the Father leads, it heals, it leads to healing in broken dads, And the love of the Father heals the wounds of children who have been wounded by broken dads. And the love of our Heavenly Father reconciles earthly fathers to their children. That is the good news of the gospel. And fathers, if we will personally come to know the love of the Father, be there for our children and walk daily in the gospel of Jesus Christ, We will be faithful, godly fathers who faithfully represent our Heavenly Father by pointing our children to Him. Amen. Let's pray.